WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Salmon are not native to the Great Lakes. They were introduced to the Great Lakes to control invasive prey fish. Today we're here to talk to Jake Sawecki about his research on the management of Great Lakes salmon. Jake, may you please introduce yourself for us and our audience? Yeah, my name is Jake Sawicki, and I am a PhD student here at Michigan State in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife. I got my Master's of Science in Biology from Central Michigan University. And here at MSU, I am working with Dr. Brian Roth, and we are studying the diets of salmon, lake trout, which are some of the top predators in Lakes Huron and Michigan. It's nice to meet you, Jake. Thanks for joining us today. In regards to the salmon, normally people associate salmon with being something that's found on the west coast of the United States. Where did the salmon that are found in the Great Lakes come from, and how were the salmon introduced into the Great Lakes ecosystem? The salmon that are in the Great Lakes actually did come from the West Coast. So back in the 1960s, there was a scientist that worked for what's now known as the DNR. It was the Department of Conservation back in the 1960s, Dr. Howard Tanner. He came up with the idea to introduce the salmon to the Great Lakes as a method for controlling an invasive prey species known as the alewife, which entered the Great Lakes and started dominating the Great Lakes ecosystem to the point where they were starting to die off in massive numbers and wash up on beaches, which made tourism go down because people didn't want to go to beaches covered in dead, smelly fish. So the idea was bring the salmon over and they'll eat those alewife and solve the problem for us. So they started with coho salmon from the West Coast and then introduced other salmon such as Chinook salmon, which are also known as king salmon. I've never heard of an alewife before. May you please describe some of the characteristics of this fish? Yeah, so an alewife is a small bait fish. They get to as big as about five or six inches, and there's just a small silver fish that form large schools, and they school up in the Great Lakes. They're originally from the ocean, and they school up in the Great Lakes and form these bait clusters that salmon love to go and prey on. So there's just this small bait fish that are the perfect prey source for a variety of different fish. It sounds like introducing the salmon have really helped with this alewife problem that the Great Lakes have been dealing with. I'm curious, though, what kinds of challenges have come along with introducing these salmon in there anyways? That's a really good question, and the answer is pretty complicated. There's a lot of challenges that have come with managing these salmon in the Great Lakes, and They've done an excellent job at controlling the alewife. There's really no alewife left in Lake Huron. There are some, but the population did crash in 2003. And the reason that the population crashed was because there were too many salmon. The salmon were eating the alewife and the alewife over time disappeared because they were being preyed on too heavily by the salmon. So Lake Huron, now the struggle is actually to get stable salmon populations when there's no longer this prey base. 
And then we're starting to see some of the same things happen on Lake Michigan. There's a lot of interest in the alewife populations now, rather than wanting to get rid of them, which was the original goal. People want the alewife to stay because it's the number one food source for these big Chinook salmon. So without the alewife, they have nothing to eat. So the salmon fixed the problem, but at the same time created another problem because they did too good of a job in fixing the problem and getting rid of these invasive fish. Now that the alewife population has declined, do the salmon have anything else to eat as an alternative? And why would we want to keep the salmon in the Great Lakes if they're not native to here? The salmon, depending on the species, will eat a variety of different things, but their number one prey source is these invasive alewife. So the king salmon specifically, which are the Chinook salmon, their diet consists almost exclusively alewife. They'll occasionally eat another small prey fish, which is the rainbow smelt. They are also invasive to the Great Lakes. They will occasionally eat cisco, which are native to the Great Lakes. Their population levels aren't as high as these invasive fish species, but they're an alternative prey source. And then some other species of salmon, like coho, will vary their diet a little bit, and they'll eat insects, they'll eat fish known as sticklebacks, and then they'll eat a good number of those rainbow smelts. But for the big king salmon, it's almost all alewife. And although the salmon are non-native, they've created this fishery in the Great Lakes where people come from all over the place to fish for these big salmon on the Great Lakes, which has created a multi-billion dollar fishing industry in the states that surround the Great Lakes. So there's a lot of interest in keeping the salmon in the Great Lakes, even though the prey that they once were able to eat in large numbers is no longer there. People want the salmon to stay because it brings in fishing opportunities. It gives people that are charter captains around the state income. That's their job. That's how they make their money. So economically, the salmon being in the Great Lakes is important for the state of Michigan, the state of Wisconsin, Indiana, all the states that surround the Great Lakes that bring in people for this tourism to fish for these big salmon. Gotcha. So the reason is money. That makes sense. In regards to your research, Jake, how does Great Lakes salmon management play into your research and what do you do more specifically? So my research is focused on the diets of the salmon in addition to some of the other big predator fish in the Great Lakes. So the idea is we want to understand what these fish are eating. Because if we can understand what these fish are eating, then we have a better chance of managing them in an appropriate manner. So we want to know what lake trout are eating, which are another big predator in the Great Lakes. And we want to know what the salmon are eating. Because if they're competing with one another for the same food source, and we know how much of the food source is available within the lake, then management agencies such as the DNR know a rough estimate of how many fish that they're able to stock within the lake or how many fish that the lake is able to support. And one of the ways that they're able to do this is through complex model building, which essentially is a guesstimate for what the future is going to look like in Lake Michigan or in Lake Huron based on the data that we currently have. So the data that I'm collecting will be useful in those models because it will give management agencies an idea of how many fish one salmon is eating in its lifetime. 
and how many fish in the lake are going to be needed to support X number of salmon going forward, X number of lake trout, or X number of a different species. So it's really important. Essentially, it boils down to it's information for these models, which can help predict what the lakes are going to do in the future and how many fish the lakes can support in the future as well. I've been wondering how the incorporation of salmon into the Great Lakes affects the food pyramid in your models. What factors are you using in your models? And also, does anything eat the salmon other than humans? So the models that are being built to estimate future populations of prey fish and how many salmon can be supported, there's some that exist now. And the models that exist now are including only king salmon. So those are the Chinook salmon and alewife as their prey. And since these salmon predominantly feed on alewife, they really haven't had too much of an influence on the rest of the food web. They've mostly just stuck to the alewife which if anything has allowed other native small prey fish to grow in population size because the salmon are doing a really good job at reducing the number of these alewife, which are invasive fish. Some other things that the model considers are natural mortality of salmon. So salmon that are dying for reasons other than being caught by anglers, estimated levels of prey fish within the lakes, They're also using estimations of natural reproduction. So salmon in the Great Lakes are capable of producing naturally. They're not all stocked into the lake. So in the fall, they'll swim into the rivers and they'll spawn. And some of this reproduction is successful. There's ways to estimate the amount that is successful. That's not particularly parts of my research, but that information on how many salmon are being produced per year is also incorporated into these models because we need to have some kind of estimate of how many fish are entering the system on a yearly basis. In the Great Lakes, there's not really anything that eat the salmon. Well, once they get bigger, for the baby salmon or the juveniles, some fish will eat them. Even salmon will eat salmon. Lake trout will eat salmon. It's very rare. We don't see it very often in the fish stomachs that I process in the lab. And then there's some birds that will eat juvenile salmon as well. Uh, Cormorants will eat juvenile salmon, not very frequently. The number that they eat is very small. But overall, there's really not much that will eat them once they get big. And they get big pretty fast, so they're not vulnerable for too long. Well, I think it's very clear from that answer that this model is a very complicated one. And it takes in a lot of different parameters that are important for informing and making these kinds of predictions. When you talk about how you're processing the fish in your laboratory, how exactly are you doing this? Are you cutting the fish open? What are you doing to study the contents of the fish? Yeah, so cutting the fish open is exactly what we're doing. In the lab at Michigan State, what we have is frozen fish stomachs. But in the summer, we'll go out to fishing tournaments on weekends and collect fish stomachs from anglers. We also have collaborators in the DNR that will collect fish stomachs for us from anglers and then from their trawl surveys that they do on their vessels. 
people from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service will collect fish stomachs for us. The tribes collect fish stomachs for us. So this is a large collaboration. And in 2019, I believe there were over 4,000 stomachs collected. So there's a lot of people involved. People that are everyday anglers can volunteer to donate their stomachs to the project as well. We just ask that they take the stomach out of their fish, get the appropriate measurements, and then save them in a freezer for us to pick up later. So the stomachs come from a lot of different locations. They're just cut out of the fish. After we get a length measurement, we write down what species it is, the date that it was caught, and then they come back to the lab at Michigan State. And then once they're in the lab at MSU, they're in a large freezer. We take them out, we thaw them, we cut the stomach open, and then we dig around inside the stomach to see what's in there. And the degree of digestion can range from a fish that's just a few bones to a fish that looks like it was just eaten, like a fish you would go catch out in the lake with a net and not digest it at all. So identification can be quite easy, but it can also be quite difficult when you only have a few bones. Some of the bones that we use in the lab to identify these fish are clythra bones, which are two bones that are on these prey fish and they're on either side of their pectoral fins. So they hold the pectoral fins to the fish and they're unique between different species. So we can use the structure of these bones to identify what that fish was. And then we can also use bones called otoliths, which are known as ear bones. And these are found in the skull of the fish. So we can pull these bones out of the skull of these bay fish and use them to identify what that bay fish was as well. Wow, that's a lot of fish stomachs. I can't even imagine going through thousands of fish. What are you doing to analyze the fish after you open them up? Are you doing any assays to specifically understand everything they're consuming? Or can you identify everything visually, like you said? For the most part, we just use visuals. So we use those two bones that I talked about. And then as far as analysis goes, we'll measure the length of all the fish and we'll get a weight on all the prey items. One thing that we are doing beyond just looking at what the fish are, getting a measurement, writing down what species they are, is stable isotope analysis. So with that, these prey fish all have their own chemical signature. The predator fish also have their own chemical signature. So if these tissues that we take from the prey fish or the predator fish, we get them processed. We don't do that at Michigan State ourselves. We send them off to a different lab. They do it for us. They give us a chemical signature. And this chemical signature tells us where they're found within the food web and gives us a little bit of a more long-term picture of what fish are eating over the course of several months rather than opening up a stomach and seeing what that fish ate the day before. It's pretty crazy to me that you're able to actually see these little alewives in the stomachs of these king salmon, for example. But that got me thinking, actually, because I'm sure you're catching these fish or anglers are catching these fish at different time points of digestion. How long is the time frame of digestion for a king salmon, for example, from ingestion to excretion? We get fish in these stomachs that are at a lot of different degrees of digestion. And that is actually information that we do record so that we can go back and look at that later. And there are actually a lot of factors that contribute to the overall digestion speed that occurs within each of these different fish. And it varies. It's based on temperature. It's based on metabolism. So there's no exact answer that I can give you. But what I can say is that the things that we find in the stomach were probably eaten within the previous 24 hours. 
You've gone through thousands of fish throughout your research. What is your goal for how many fish you want to analyze, and what do you want to do with the data after collection? So we do have specific goals on the number of fish that we want to collect per year. And I can't give you the number off the top of my head, but we want to get fish from different locations within the lake, from different times of the year, from different species. So I believe the goal is 15 of each species each month from each statistical district within each lake. So Lake Michigan is broken down into these management units, which are called statistical districts. And it's basically just different portions of the lake separated by different locations. And that's just used to help managers focus on a particular region within the lake. So the goal would end up being quite a lot more than we actually are able to collect because we don't get many fish collected in January, February, December, November when people aren't out on the water because it's cold. But ideally, we'd like to get a couple thousand per lake. So the data will be used for a variety of different purposes. There's a lot of questions that can be asked using this information. So there's some is whether or not the diets of fish caught from anglers, so people that are catching them with a fishing hook and a fishing pole, are different than fish that are caught in a gill net, which is a survey. And these fish just are swimming in the water and they get stuck in a net and then they're pulled out of the water. This is usually done by agencies such as the DNR. And there's some interest in whether or not those diets differ from one another, which would have implications for Maybe we aren't exactly predicting what they're eating if they're eating different things based on how they're being captured. And then the other thing that this data can be used for is really it's going to be crucial for the management of these different fish, mostly the salmon, in Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. This information will mostly be used to power those models to be used for predicting and forecasting how many of these fish can the lake support and is the lake able to support these fish in the future? Recently on the news, I've seen a bunch of stories talking about how there have been issues with Great Lakes predatory native fish struggling to maintain their populations, one of them including Lake Sturgeon. Could you talk a little bit about what the applicability of this model that you're working to develop is with the salmon towards these other Great Lakes fish? Not so much sturgeon because their feeding ecology is so much different, but a fish like lake trout, like this information is going to be salmon are the, the money makers, right? So salmon are the ones that get all the attention. But yeah, this data is really relevant for fish like lake trout, which are a hot topic right now because anglers don't like catching lake trout. They actually hate catching lake trout for the most part, but lake trout are native to the Great Lakes. Salmon are not. So there's a lot of debate on why are we managing for salmon? when we want to restore the native lake trout. But then the anglers, which is where the money comes from, of course, they want to manage the salmon. So there's a lot of pressure to make sure the salmon stay in the lakes. But yeah, it's definitely applicable to other fish. And the models in the future, right now they only include king salmon and alewife. But I think the goal is to include walleye, lake trout, all sorts of different predator fish. Not so much the smallmouth bass, largemouth bass, pike, but the salmon, the trout, and the walleye. I think this is really wonderful research that you're doing, Jake. What inspired you to pursue this research on Great Lakes salmon management? Well, I have been a Michigander for my entire life. I've never lived outside of the state of Michigan, so I love the Great Lakes. I grew up around the Great Lakes, so the Great Lakes mean a lot to me. 
And I'm also a fisherman. So I'm a bass fisherman. I don't do any salmon fishing, but I understand the importance of maintaining a healthy fishery for those people that do like to fish for the salmon, because I would feel the same if someone was managing the bass populations, I'd want them to be successful and I'd want there to be a lot of research on it. So my background in fishing definitely led me towards studying fish in the Great Lakes and having an interest in promoting a healthy fishery and a healthy population of those fish by doing research on them. Well, I'm glad that you're able to incorporate your passion for fishing into your research. What do you plan to do once you've finished your PhD? Do you plan to either be a professional fisherman or are you going to go out into the Great Lakes and be a consultant for anglers or something? As much as I would love to be a professional fisherman, I don't know if it'll pay the bills. So I will keep professional fishermen as my hobby. But I decided to get my PhD because I really love to teach. So that's not related to my research. But in order to work at a university as a professor, you have to get a PhD. So I chose to get a PhD, at least researching stuff that I'm interested in. And I love the research that I do. So when I do become a professor one day and get to fulfill my dream of teaching, I plan on continuing to do Great Lakes research, whether that's on salmon or maybe another type of fish, like my favorite, the largemouth bass. I'd like to continue doing research on aquatic fish and specifically the Great Lakes, but I really decided to get my PhD because I have a love for teaching. Well, Jake, you've definitely taught Daniel and I a lot today about your research, and I bet our listeners have learned a lot too. Good luck with your research, Jake, and send us any pictures of any future catches you get. I will. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.